0: Welcome, you're listening to the Agile Unemployment Podcast, where in each episode, we take an in-depth look at being out of work. We'll talk about the programs and benefits available to you. We'll talk about the job hunting process itself. And most importantly, we're gonna address the psychological and emotional impact that being out of work has on the individual. I'm your host, Sabina Sulat. I'm an HR expert and author. A few years ago, I lost my dream job and found myself unemployed for the first time in my life. I was frustrated by the lack of resources and information available to people out of work. But more than that, I was just stunned by the fact that we don't talk about unemployment. I took my experience and I turned it into a book and I now coach people to build resilience while they're out of work. If you are out of work, if you recently lost your job or maybe you've been unemployed for a while or maybe you're just afraid that you might lose your current job, this is the place to be. We're a safe place where we can talk about all aspects of being out of work. We can answer your questions and we can help you build resilience so that when you go back to work, you are stronger and more confident than ever. So let's get started. Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning into the Agile Unemployment Podcast. This is Sabina, and I know I say this every time, and I say this as well. I really, really mean it this time. I'm incredibly honored and excited by today's guest, Dr. Mike Rucker. And very quickly this came about because a friend suggested his book the fun habit to me and of course i had to get it right away we all know i have the book collection taller than me <laughs> and i started reading it and I'm like i've got to talk to this man because i think he has a phenomenal message that's important to anybody but especially to people who are out of work and you're going to bear with us as we dig into that so First of all, I would like to introduce health technology expert, author, Dr. Mike Rucker.
1: No worries, no worries. Mike is fine. Thank you so much for having me, Sabina.
0: You're welcome and welcome to the podcast. I'm going to jump right in. We have a short period of time. And this is a conversation I've been looking forward to since you agreed to come on. The purpose of this podcast is to help people who are out of work, anyone who's been out of work, I think we tend to focus on that administrative part of looking for a job. We tend to jump right in. I have taken the stance that there's this whole other side of us that we don't take care of when we're out of work. That's that well-being, wellness, self-worth side. Losing your job is incredibly traumatic. And I always ask people to try to find why this happened to you and what good you can take to move forward. I feel like I did that. I wanted to read your book because it sounded interesting and that it dovetailed nicely into mine. But then I started to read your book and I realized that's exactly what you did and that's how this book was born. Do you mind if I could ask you to please share that story of how this all came about? You share it in your introduction. I think it would help so many people.
1: Yeah, appreciate that. I mean, essentially, the book came about because I was a big believer in positive psychology and really driven to try and optimize my life in all facets. And so, just hard driving. And to some degree, that had been a successful endeavor for almost over a decade. I was a charter member of the International Positive Psychology Association. The only reason that's important is kind of for the timeline that came about in about 2005, and for folks that don't know what positive psychology is, it's essentially a facet of psychology that was born through a few clinicians and practitioners to use psychological principles for betterment. Up until that point, it had been primarily used to treat mental deficits. And so we were looking at ways to use these tools for betterment. And so that had work things like mindfulness, which I'm still a big believer in, things like gratitude journaling, which I'm still a big believer in but I gotten weird about it. I had really, you know, coupled it with productivity and the quantified self movement where I was like tracking things on spreadsheets and looking for correlations to just squeeze a little bit more out. And then in 2016, I had kind of a series of unfortunate events that really changed everything. One was that I lost my younger brother to a pulmonary embolism, um, And that used me to the finality of time, right? Like, wow, okay, things are going good until they're not, right? And then also I had been a runner up until that point, not a a professional runner by any stretch, but I had used running really effectively to mitigate low-level anxiety. I've always kind of been an anxious person and found out quite suddenly, these two aren't related at all, but a couple of months after my brother's passing, found out that I had advanced osteoarthritis, likely due to an injury that went unnoticed and was going to need a hip replacement and wasn't going to be able to run again. And so really found myself in this dark hole, having to essentially reinvent myself. In the intro, what I share is that we now know this because science has kind of backed this assertion up by a bunch of empirical research, but folks that are overly concerned with trying to reach an outcome, for me, it was getting myself back on my feet and happy again, that kind of perseverate on that rather than taking action, end up generally in a pretty bad place, like to the degree that it can lead to clinical outcomes, which certainly was where I was at. And so that's kind of the, the origin story of the book. And so where did that lead me, right? And so I think similar to yourself, when you go on this sort of fun journey of exploration. You want to share what you, what you found. And I think the big takeaway is that a lot of us aren't valuing time the same way we value money and are able to switch that back when you're able to reclaim some of your autonomy so that you're going through the frame of, I get to do these things instead of I have to do things. Sort of the magic starts to happen.
0: And I I love that all of what you said, so much of what I talk about, I write about all of the time. And I I often hear from people, but I have to do these things. I have to get a job. And it's not that you and I don't understand that logic. We we get we need to pay bills and so forth. But it really is that introspection of yourself that will help you recover from a trauma or tragedy. At least that's my theory. I don't have your education behind it, but it's worked for me and a lot of other people. So I really appreciate that. And why I said that is I don't want anyone listening to think we don't take things seriously. We probably take things way too seriously. (laughs) but We also realize you have to have that balance. And a lot of times when you're in the middle of a personal crisis, something deep, like being out of work, you feel like you're not allowed to have fun. You're not allowed to laugh you're not allowed to take time for yourself. And I think the opposite is true. You have to do that in order to be well to move on. I love your title. And what I want you to do is, what do you mean by fun? Because fun is different for every person, but it's very specific for your book.
1: Yeah. I took a clinical definition. I use kind of a fancy word that we use in psychology called valence, but Valence essentially just means are you enjoying what you're doing, right? So when we look at the spectrum of valence, anything on the positive side of valence are things that we enjoy doing that we're attracted to. And anything on the negative side of valence are things that we don't really enjoy doing and often we find depleting or repelled by, right? And so... Um, The whole idea is that we have a certain amount of hours in our week. How can we organize our time in such a way that even if it's things we have to do, like finding a job, how could we make that enjoyable? And to your point, if there are certain aspects of our day or week that we can't, how can we at least figure out what our transition rituals are, what the finish line is for the week so that we feel good about the things that we had to do so that we are engaging in some opportunities for renewal as well? So that until whatever needs to get done, whether that's a crisis or just the job that needs to get done, we're showing up the next day with a bigger vitality to actually do the thing. Because I'm sure you've seen it with your clients, um, and I explore it in various avenues in the book, is that when we're not doing that, then what happens is we show up the next day without the ability to even do what we're supposed to do. And then that becomes really problematic. It becomes a, a downward spiral, right? You could finally get burnt out. I don't even want to look for a job. And that can become then a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Then that despair just gets stretched out. I I explore it with change makers, but I think it applies to various domains and facets of life, right? Anybody trying to do a hard thing, if they're not recharging their batteries, if they're not enjoying at least some aspect of their life, ultimately won't have the energy to do the things they need to do anyways.
0: love that. And you said it so much better than I do in my book. It's that thing of you can't take care of anyone else or anything else unless you take care of yourself. And it doesn't have to be this big investment. It can be these tiny little things that you do that brings so much reward. And we have to be okay with letting ourselves do that. And I don't think we are. One thing you talk about that I think would be important to talk, to discuss is you, you make sure to mention there's this difference between happy and fun. And in some ways, my part of my takeaway was sometimes trying to be happy takes away from fun a lot. And can you talk about that? Because that doesn't make sense. When, you, <laughs> when I say it, it doesn't make sense. But reading your book, I'm like, yes. And mm-hmm. so can you talk a little about that? Yeah.
1: yeah, it's essentially just looking at fun as an action orientation, right? As a facet of being mindful and really enjoying in the moment where your feet are. And so the way that we look at happiness in the West, it's essentially an exercise in evaluation, right? Someone asks us, are you happy? And you have to sit and pause. And oftentimes when you do that, you get stuck in rumination. Like, am I happy? And all these weird, interesting things happen, right? One, we know through evolution, we weren't meant to be, quote unquote, happy all the time, right? we can Wait certainly... a minute,
0: what? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Because that's if we were satiated, we essentially become sloths, right? Like, you know, there's a reason why certain things are pleasurable. And so, you know, we in science, we call it the hedonic treadmill. Like, a social uh, essential uh, over time, you're going to adapt to whatever the good thing is, right? It started with lottery winners, but this kind of phenomenon has been replicated over and over again. The good news is for anyone that finds themselves in a rut is that when you are feeling down oftentimes you will be lifted back up over time as well like what seems really rotten right now you're going to adapt to that too in the book i cite research about folks that have lost a limb like obviously while you're adapting to that change it's going to be awful but oftentimes that reward of still being alive and just knowing how precious life is can be a gift that actually makes you a little bit happier where like lottery winners paradoxically they're like, oh yeah, now I can buy whatever I want, right? And so their first year is amazing. And then they realize that the fourth cousins that they've never met are banging on their door and just all the stresses that come with the new social strata. Happiness becomes this thing, like especially to the point where you see these interesting interventions where we've quantified it. So, like, what's your happiness on a scale of zero to 10, right? Well, what happens when you reach that 10? Like, I talk about in the book in 2016, like, there is nowhere else to go but some level of unhappiness because you've already peaked, right? And so, fun is just something that you engage in. You never have to wonder how much fun you're having. You're just like, is what I'm doing enjoyable or is it not? And if it's not, then there's a whole host of things you can do to kind of improve your situation. And again, it's not meant to be a whimsical life, right? I think all of us that wanna be productive adults, if you're looking for a job, you're certainly in that category, then there are gonna be things that you need to do. But not having what I call a transition ritual between work and leisure becomes really problematic. And unfortunately, especially here in the US, we've tied self-worth to work so much so that people have totally mortgaged even just a couple hours a week for themselves. And you're seeing the results of that, right? I specifically as a doctoral student looked at doctors. And so I get that research and the level of burnout within physicians is now at the highest it's ever been at 63%. Mm. And then the American Psychological Association, this was all over LinkedIn, as indicated, one out of four working individuals are so burnt out mm-hmm. that they don't they don't even have energy to do anything by the time they get home. They're completely mm-hmm. depleted. If we've ever been in need of a radical course correction, my argument is it's now.
0: I would not disagree with you. You kind of call it like the the happiness trap yeah. of thinking that I, I like the way you phrase this. Happiness should never be reached, but it's something. It, to me, I don't know if it's something you can work towards because you always think, if I have this, I'll be happy. And when you're out of work, you always, oh, I'll just be happy with one interview. Nope. now I want like the job and you get the job. And this actually happened to me where I went back to work and there was no joy in it. I didn't enjoy it anymore. Something happened to me from losing my job. And that's how I ended up here. And I will dare say I am happier now. Am I the happiest I've ever been? I guess we can have a big philosophical (laughs) discussion about that. I do have a lot of fun. Your book made me realize, like, I really have fun every day. I hadn't realized that I did not when I had my final corporate gig. And it was this revelation to me about that. So you let me see what was already happening. And I appreciate that. Thank you. Um. One of the things I really love about your background and I loved about the book is you don't just wax poetic about the need to have fun and fun versus happiness. You actually give this really nice scientific, this is what happens to your body on fun. And I loved that because this is why you should do it. And this is why it recharges you. Take us through physiologically what happens when we have fun and How does that carry over to the next day where we go to where we were burned out? What happens to us?
1: Yeah, so it's clear. I think the kind of direct connection now is a couple of things. One is that the amygdala finally calms down, right? So when we are always kind of in that productivity mode, we're kind of stuck in fight or flight, right? And so if we're actually enjoying things and we know that there isn't an immediate threat and we're kind of relaxing the nervous system, then all of our systems begin to kind of calm down, right? Because essentially what we know from biology is that the main job for all of these systems is to keep us alive. And if we feel like we're always under threat because things aren't pleasurable, Mm -hmm. There become these interesting physiological consequences. What we also know is how much connection plays into that, right? And so when we're using FUN to feel connected to either what we're doing or the people that we're doing it with, we know that oxytocin gets released. And when oxytocin gets released, interesting things happen there too. We know that empathy goes up. When empathy goes up, especially in the workplace, most uh, my research has been with physicians, patient outcomes start to go up because you actually care about what you're doing. Um, And you just feel a general sense of calm, which we know relates to all sorts of physiological and psychological outcomes. And then the third one from the purely psychological level is when you know that fun can always be had, you build this level of resilience that other folks won't have because they're always kind of worried about the next threat, right? So- if something bad does happen, you go, okay, this does suck, but I'm going to get through it. We call it emotional flexibility, right? Like, cause mm-hmm. you know, yes, this sucks, but you don't catastrophize the situation because you know, it's going to be finite. And so that's another reason that I really like the construct of fun is that fun isn't, is meant to be ephemeral. Like when you're having fun, when people get mistaken about the message, like, am I supposed to be having fun all the time? No, the whole idea is to understand that the good and the bad come. But when you do know that you can bias your life towards fun, the slings and arrows that are going to inevitably happen are a lot more easy to, to tolerate.
0: I love that you brought Shakespeare into the conversation with that <laughs> last line. Thank you for that. making us Always making us a little highbrow here. I love this because Going back to what we were talking about about fun and happiness or being happy, the way people say it of like I want to be happy that it's this continuous state, fun is definitely finite. If, If am am I correct in that assumption? No, absolutely.
1: And I think the way that we go about it, certainly I don't try to be over prescriptive, but it's clear that having a mosaic of different interesting things. Becomes important. And the reason that is, is that we do want to index various memories because we know that helps create these building blocks of resilience. But I want to answer your question. I think what we're now understanding is that having these experiences can really be used as a leading indicator, right? Like, am I am I uh-huh. living a life that I enjoy? Right. And you mm-hmm. don't need to quantify that or like, cause sometimes like how many hours a week am I supposed to be enjoying myself? Like that you figure that one out. Right. But at the end of the day, to your point, like you don't need to ruminate now on, am I as happy as I've ever been? Because most people are just content with the fact that, you know what, I'm just glad my life's enjoyable for the most part. Yeah. And so you don't need to overthink it. And what we know is when you get into that state of rumination unfortunately it burns the energy you could be using to actually be enjoying yourself mm-hmm. actually be taking action rather than sort of worried too much or overly concerned about this outcome focus that you have on why is my life not as good as my neighbors or whatever it is yeah,
0: that definite comparison you write about it and i would like to say i'm immune to it i'm not i everybody well, no one is right? does it yeah, right yeah yeah
1: but I think knowing your goalposts so there's a certain mm-hmm. I'm making some presumptions about the demographic but between the ages of 35 to 50 we kind of call it the u-shaped curve of happiness like it, there's a lot of introspection that needs to happen because we're trying to understand like we've done all the work right we've generally played with different identities, we kind of understand who we believe we are. And some of that is starting to cement, right? Mm -hmm. But the good news is, is that when you're really deliberate about, okay, I know where I want to arrive. So maybe you're not there yet, or maybe better yet, you are like, let me now create the goalpost and not move it. And generally, the people that are successful in doing that can really live an amazing second trimester and third trimester of their life because they're like, I am here. I'm content. I've got what I need. And I don't necessarily need to chase things. And again, people get hung up on like, well, I actually find enjoyment in being driven. That's great. Just Mm -hmm. savor the fact that you're where you're at. And then each new win, it just becomes another amazing thing that you can celebrate and just be careful. Remember who you are but when you don't set those things, right, it does become insatiable because what happens is the goalpost mm. post just keeps moving and you quickly adapt to your new socioeconomic sort of thing. And you're like, oh, why don't I have the new Tesla in the garage? Like, you know, act. did that really ever matter? Or did you just kind of succumb to the adaptability of your new tribe, right? And so when people are more intrinsic about that, especially when it feels right, right? You know, mm-hmm. because I do feel like you have to play around with roles. This wouldn't be the advice I'd give 20 year olds because they might be playing with an identity that's not really them, because we do right. know that kind of gets formed during teens and 20s, especially if you're living in California. <laughs> it could be in the <laughs> 30s or New York, these things where we I just get amazed. I live in the South. Like how many people have it figured out at 23? And I'm like, that's just not part of the social norm of where I grew up. But I digress. So um When I was looking at all the people that seemed to get it were the ones that were really deliberate about their life design of like, this is what I want. I'm going to cement it. And then everything else can just sort of be celebrated. And again, just that important asterisk, this does not mean you have to give up productivity. And we've already kind of discussed that. Mm -hmm. It's, It's often really hard for people to get past that. Like, well, doesn't that mean then you're essentially making a case for not engaging in betterment. Like, no, you're not listening.
0: A lot to unpack there. Things are running through my head. I'm a person who I love the line of work that I'm in. And when I'm in corporate life, it's organizational development, learning, human resources. And I really enjoyed work. The idea of work. I love how we work. I studied it in grad school, everything else. And I define myself that way. So when I lost my job, I had this complete identity loss. they It's called enmeshment, where you identify so much with something and then you lose it. And you're like, wait a minute, what do I do? I think a lot of people who are out of work feel that way. And this idea of this introspection is maybe a way to carve out that other identity. But I can also say, I don't know if I ever defined having fun at work, like occasionally, you know, birthday party day or an occasional training that went really well or a business trip. But I didn't look at it as fun. And once I no longer had that, I was forced to build my own fun. And I think you're right. Things like it's surviving burnout, et cetera. As I'm reading your book, I'm thinking you had to have had like a crystal ball or something. You talk (laughs) about he's smiling, so he knows where I'm going with you talk about you're writing this and it's early 2020. um, And that's when the clock starts setting. And it seems like your book now more than ever, because people were coming out of the pandemic with. We called it The Great Resignation or Reshuffle, where people were rethinking work and so forth. It seems like the book is now more important than you probably thought it might be. Can you talk about how we're coming out of pandemic and why is your book so important for us?
1: I appreciate that. Yeah, I think we're just in this time where things are still malleable, right? I think we got intimately familiar with the rhythms of our life, and people realized that they had been giving too much away. This kind of came after writing the book, but I kind of, because I'm a believer in this, I'm not villainizing Simon Sinek, but I think we kind of got over prescribed to know your why, especially because it was used as a tool to sort of prescribe you to somebody else's why. And we weren't asking enough, what's the what that we're giving up, right? Mm -hmm. And again, this isn't necessarily suggesting that you shouldn't have a honest value exchange for your time and then you providing work, right? And some of that work might not be fun. Most challenging things are going to have periods that aren't meant to be enjoyable. That's the nature of hard work. There's certainly ways to improve upon things that really aren't fun, but we'll, maybe we'll get into that in a few minutes. But I think people became aware of like, wow, I'm just giving too much up. They And it was a whole host of things. So it, it's hard to go micro like but for some it was like yes having my kids at home is a real challenge and and it's overwhelming but I actually like the five hours that where I am making that connection I don't want to give that back up I don't want to just send them to aftercare and then get home and be so tired that we don't have those moments anymore so that might be one example Mm -hmm. for others it was I finally started taking my meetings in nature. I was always confined to the, my cubicle. And now I realized that I can do the same amount of work, but actually do things that are pleasurable at the same time. Something I call activity bundling. And so the list goes on and on and on. But I think what really happened was this idea that the 40 hour work week is immutable and that we can't have any, we can only exist with limited agency and autonomy with how we do things. And that was exposed as this humongous lie. And so people that have been successful at really asking hard questions, but then still being a good steward of the opportunities that they have, because I think I'm not a fan of silent quitting or silent promotions. I think both are insidious. Players that are essentially just giving folks duties and not compensating for them, that that's evil. The employees that do the same, even if there's good cause because they're not working for a great company. I mean, essentially, maybe that's like a short term. But when you hear about someone just doing it to get it over on the man, I don't necessarily agree with that either. What I do agree with is challenging those ideals in a very healthy space, as long as you have psychological safety, and hopefully you do within your working environment to go, is that true? Because now Mm -hmm. we've had this amazing opportunity to some of the most staunch sort of ideas about work. And and we realized that they're a lot more malleable than we thought.
0: I love the ideas that you talk about. And I love the bundling because I think that's where people want to be. its I I had a book signing and there was like this mini argument between two people, not me. And (laughs) they were arguing over one person was saying, oh, employees need to start coming into work because they're not working from home. They're not working at all. And someone else was saying, No, we are. We just, that 40-hour work week, we want quality time and work-life balance. And it was like this, take it outside kind of thing. (laughs) But I, I think it is this, we're still figuring it out. And there seemed to be this expectation of once there was a vaccine and we could go back to meeting together, it seemed like organizations wanted it to be this, let's go back to the way things were. And you can't do that when people have had dinners with their family and clean closets that are organized and redecorated homes like, wait a minute, I was I I was missing something and I found it. And now we have to find that equilibrium. I think this book could be so helpful in figuring that out. It's going to look different for every organization, every job. We might have to start sending your book out to people. But
1: I think you're right, though. Go ahead. No, I was saying that's another thing. Like People get hung up because there are vocations where that's not going to be accessible. Again, oh. you can't tell a physician to work from home. But I think having a degree of empathy and meeting in the middle and allowing folks to co-create what the solution is rather than prescribing it from leadership, I love That's that. that's where I'm seeing the biggest successes because then it's an open dialogue. It's not like okay, well, I don't like this now, so let me rule the roost as it were.
0: I think something that's come out of the pandemic, I was talking to a client and we were talking about their work life and helping them negotiate something and they finally got really quiet and they're like, I never realized this before, but I am the asset. I think employees all over the globe are realizing that, especially here in the States. And I think that was something people didn't believe. Before they, yes, we should feel lucky to have a job and benefits and things like that, but also understand you bring something to the table that needs to be honored as well. And the fact that you advocate really taking some time to yourself, I think that's a part of understanding yourself as well, is what you can do, what are your needs, all of that balance. And then that helps you ultimately decide what you want to do, how you need to recharge yourself. Again, very timely. My favorite chapter in the book, my favorite chapter title (laughs) (laughs) is about friendship and just how weird it is. (laughs) I think that's something, so you talk about the generations that, or the age groups, that have these identities now, and they're the ones who are really geared because they figured out what they should do, what fun looks like, what happiness is, or the fact that it should be, you should look at where you want to set your goalpost rather than continuing to move it. But fun can also be a group activity. It's a bonding thing. But when you're at that age, it's a little harder. This is kind of the um, joke of the universe, I guess, It's so easy to make friends in your 20s. You walk down the street and 10 minutes later, you've got a group of people to go out with. But when you're in that older age group, it's harder to find your friends. So how do we reconcile this for the people who should be having the fun habit?
1: It does require a little bit of premeditation and sometimes, you know, a few of these strategies in the book inherently at the onset aren't fun, right? So that becomes a little bit difficult. I think there are some pretty pedestrian strategies for doing this, though. One is most of us do have fun friends that we've kind of let languish a little bit during the pandemic. And so if you have memories of, hey, every time I'm with this person, I just know that I belly laugh and like we talk for hours and I just feel better when I leave that Why not take the initiative and invite them out? And nine times out of 10, they're going to say yes. And it's really just rehabituating that behavior because it was things that we did pre-pandemic where you're just not seeing a lot of it. In the context of work, there was an amazing article in the Wall Street Journal. Maybe you can put it in the show notes about how like partners are now re-engaging, like especially if you don't work with your partner, using your lunch hour. I call it reclaiming the lunch hour. So I was so excited to see it in, in this format of finding time to really connect with people that you like during those moments that you have. And work Mm -hmm. is where we spend a majority of our time. So oftentimes, um, I talk about the complexities of making friends within your direct cohort, because there could be power dynamics, there could be that cognitive Mm -hmm. load of, these are people that I don't necessarily want to show my full hand to, because that's not the appropriate thing within this group dynamic. We do have a job to get done, as it were. But especially if you're living in a big, excuse me, living, <laughs> that's a, a mixed metaphor there, especially if you're working in a bigger organization, oftentimes there's amazing people with your same affinity. Like perhaps you go to human resources and find that, do they have any affinity groups? Is it something that you like, let's say rock climbing or a book club or anything in between, and then you can plug and play with those folks. But what we know now know, you know, Robert has an amazing book that's kind of trending with mine about his look at the good life project where he was looking, is that to have the title, right? Anyways, I digress, but essentially we know that a lot of us feel lonely. And so finding ways to connect with the ones that, you know, the friends that we do like, or finding opportunities to connect with new friends becomes important.
0: We were so good at that in the pandemic. We had zoom, we were all sheltering in place, staying in place. So you're sitting around and, hey, I'll reach out to so-and-so who I went to school with. And because I know they're there, I know they're home. And a lot of friendships have picked up. And maybe even if distance is an issue, there's still this way of staying connected and maybe getting together once in a while to do that fun activity that we all bonded over. I think when we I know historians will one day write about the pandemic I hope they do a lot of focus on some of these positives that have come out of it and yeah. I think you speak a lot to those.
1: Yeah, I would call them silver linings for sure. Yeah. Um there's a lot of bad I mean I, you know as I confess in the book I'm one of the unfortunate folks that got long covid and luckily I'm you know mm-hmm. out of out of that fog it certainly disrupted a lot of lives right so like yeah. we don't want to skirt past that but Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think you know, anyone that has an organizational slant like I do and like yourself, we know that disruption is the best time to create positive change, right? And so I think that's exactly it. It's reestablishing that psychological safety and understanding that you're safe again so that you can sort of broaden your the breadth of creative and nonlinear thinking, right? Because sometimes what becomes problematic because when we do feel in danger, we tend to be pretty linear in our thinking. Like, I just want to be safe again. But now that we're there, using all of these opportunities that we've talked about in the last 50 minutes, I think there's just a, to your point, there are there is a lot of upside. We were able to connect with others. Moving that from Zoom meetings, which aren't as that level of intimacy that's not there. Now seeing if there are opportunities, even if that's just creating... You know, something that's reasonable, right? Like, so in the book, I talk about my friend Nier that created a monthly dinner date for his friends. Well, maybe doing something monthly sounds overwhelming. Why not just try and do something quarterly and don't do it at your house so you don't have to worry about cleanup. But figuring out a way to ritualize these things become important because unfortunately when we don't, right? Well, you know, again, you know, pre-pandemic, you know, you can go two years and be like, I can't believe we haven't seen each other for that long. Mm-hmm. And that's just so unfortunate. And these are little moments, right? We're talking about, you know, you have 168 hours in your week. And even if you're sleeping eight eight hours a day, 56 minus 168, whatever that is, right? There's still a lot of time. Like I don't, I think people don't understand, don't have this intimacy about the fact that there are Time blocks within our schedule, even if we're extremely busy, and to be able to protect those and fill those with some fun allows us to be better versions of ourselves. So even if we're looking through the lens of a sense of duty with regards to how we orchestrate our life, allowing ourselves to at least enjoy some of it allows us to be a good steward of that responsibility. It allows us to be more productive. Anyone that doesn't believe me, just Google the hedonic flexibility principle. (laughs) I mean, this is not just my conjecture. This is science.
0: I love that fun really is science. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm sold. I (laughs) realize I need to have fun. I liked what you said earlier about make a reservation somewhere so you don't have to clean up. So you don't, I'm assuming, resent it. And it's not more work than fun. How do I go about bringing fun into my life? Let's keep in mind, Every man and especially our audience who maybe are a little cash strapped, maybe probably in a deeper valley than most people because they're unemployed. So how do I have fun?
1: Yeah. So I think it's going to determine that for themselves. There's certainly a host of amazing ways to enjoy yourself that don't cost a lot of money. I think one that might be useful, I talk about it in the book, for this audience is uh, especially if you live in a bigger city, using something like meetup.com where you can go to an affinity group, where it might also allow you the opportunity to network with folks that you know could potentially present you an interesting opportunity. And the reason why that is an interesting method is two. One, it's plugged in play with folks that you know are already gonna like things that you like, mm-hmm. right? The second is for introverts, you don't necessarily need to talk because oftentimes they're organized around the activities. It's not like a networking event, which just is not enjoyable for introverts. At least that's what I hear because I'm not one, but my sense is that the, they're not fun. And so, but affinity groups are. And so that's one thing. The other again is now that you have some time, figure out, This isn't necessarily how to bring fun in, but to make sure that you preserve the space to allow fun to thrive. Like, what are your transition rituals? What's going to be an okay cadence Mm -hmm. for sending out resumes? Because I was in that space before. (laughs) Yeah, we hit record. (laughs) We talked about that. And so my wife and I both got laid off right after the dot com boom. And it was an agonizing time. Um, and I remember like, okay, when is my gonna, day going to end with regards to researching opportunities mm-hmm. and sending resumes? And maybe intuitively I was already onto something, but I realized that I needed to know when my day was done. So I said, I'll get 12 resumes out a day, plus or minus. I gave myself a little bit of grace and some days I was crushing it. And when that was done, I and it wasn't a time that I had a ton of money, but I made sure that I was connecting with people so that I still felt This connection and I was still enjoying some of that time. And I still felt good about what work I had put into that day. And that allowed it to have some legs. And so again, understanding what your options are. That's I have this model that I don't think we're gonna have time to get into, but I, I call it saver, and each one is a component. We've already talked about activity bundling and story editing, which is just reframing. The O stands for options, and that is what are the things that I can do. And so oftentimes. What keeps you stuck is you're just like, I don't know, like, it's just okay, well, think about it. Like, what are those opportunities? Oftentimes, there are movies playing that, you know, that you can get access for free, like, especially interesting documentaries that are touring that are, you know, part of your community center, again, affinity groups, it could be just reconnecting with nature, are there any forms of exercise that you find enjoyable Generally, most of those are free unless it's actually going to a health club. Maybe it could be as simple. This is what a friend of mine did is walking their neighbor's dog because they love dogs and they were in a situation. So it's going to be unique to you. But I think one of the first steps is to sit down and really brainstorm like, okay, you know what? I am just not having fun. I do got to do this work. So how can I create a transition ritual from knowing that I've done the work to find a new job? And then what can I do after that to at least bring some joy into my life? For others, it could be cooking. That's one that's really blown me away. And then for me specifically, but I did find that it was a commonality. I mean, I took online dance classes with my daughter and that was free from YouTube. If you're a parent, what can you do? Let your kids lead, allow them to invite you in. As long as you're enjoying the activity, potentially put some things together, especially because you do have some agency and autonomy over your time, that again, using that word silver lining, right, that others might not have. So make sure that you kind of capitalize on that as well. So you're not looking back at the time. as just like, oh, this was three months that I didn't have a job. You could also look back at it and kind of savor like this was three months that I got to dictate what I, how I Mm -hmm. spent my time.
0: Oh, I think there is definitely almost a sadness that comes when you return to work because (laughs) it's, I found I had a resentment because I had this wonderful routine I concocted for myself. And I'm like, wait, I can't meditate anymore because I have to be work at 630 in the morning. And yeah, there was it took an adjustment for me to get back to corporate life. And I love all of this because you can get burnout on being unemployed, like you said, spending all day applying to things and fun makes you set those limits and prevent you from getting burned out and get you rejuvenated. And I love all of this. And I never once thought that we would struggle for conversation. I think this could go on (laughs) even more. We might have to have you back because I do want to talk about some other things. But in closing, well, two things. First of all, I love the stories you share in the book, your own and those of others. Is there one that really sticks out to you that you can share with us?
1: Yeah, there's, I mean, I, I enjoy all the stories, I bet. Evolve, but, yeah. but I think for this, it's, you know, one that I haven't shared a lot. I had the opportunity to do an Ironman and you guys can't see me, at, you know, cause I know this is a podcast, but at the time I was a, a big guy. And so I had no business doing an Ironman. I grew up in a small town, Davis, California. And the only reason that's important is that we have a local hero named Dave Scott who won the first oh. few And so Ironman is kind of part of the local mystique. And so it was something that I wanted to do. And again, had no business in even thinking I could do it. But I reversed the problem and made every component of achieving that goal fun. And by doing so, I was able to get myself across the finish line. And so did I come in 12th to last? Yes, I did. But I mean, I did something that just such a small minority are able to do. And so... Looking at any big, heady problem and trying to figure out what are the components of that process that I can engage in in a playful way so that you actually look forward to doing it, even if it's something as challenging as an Ironman becomes extremely important because the simple frame that I like to use is what parts of it can you make invigorating so it's actually increasing the energy you have to do things versus depleting. And when you're able to do that, then the magic happens, right?
0: Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. And thank you for sharing. As we wrap up, what is the next step for you?
1: So the book came out and it's had a level of success. So I'm happy with that. And I've been since, essentially since I got married, I've either been going to school and working or writing this book and working. And so I'm on sabbatical from work right now and essentially just doing podcasts to promote the book. And so I'm really enjoying this Autonomy. I know it comes from a big place of privilege. And so I savor and savor that fact. And I'm very grateful. But, you know, for the first time in my life, I can't, There, there's nothing on the horizon. and I kind of like it. I think I'm sure I'll start to get that anxiety build up in February and, you know, by the end of February, rather, and, and have a different answer for you then. But I... I'm just really enjoying things right now. And it's been a a long time coming. So
0: (laughs) like I said, you're walking the walk and I really appreciate that. Definitely. We'll think about having you come back, talk more about it. So Mike, thank you so much for coming. The book is called The Fun Habit. If you are in a brick and mortar bookstore, you will spot it from across the (laughs) store. It has this beautiful, brilliant cover I've had people walk up to me in public. What are you reading? It looks phenomenal. Just by, It is a book that you can judge by its cover. I'm a little <laughs> jealous. You. But thank you, Mike, for coming. And please, I really encourage anyone, follow Mike, read the book, and above all, go out and have some fun.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Spina Appreciate Absolutely.
0: it. Absolutely. And there you have it for today. I hope you learned something or heard something today that is helping you as you are in your out-of-work journey and that will help you normalize the conversation about being out of work. If you heard something that resonated with you, please show us support, subscribe, like, or comment on something. If you'd like to learn more information, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn, Sabina Sula. I'm the only one. You can also reach out to me on my website, reworkingworks.com. You can also email me at S S U L A T at reworking.com. I'd love to hear from you. If you want to know about private coaching, more about the book, more about the podcast, I wish you luck in your getting back to work journey. I hope that you've learned something here that if it hasn't made that journey a little shorter, it's at least made it a little easier. Until next time, thanks for joining.